Of all the directions from which one can approach Mount Rushmore, the least traveled is from the north. However so, this was the choice I made for a day's journey that commenced at dawn on August 6th, 2000, at the battleground of Slim Buttes in the upper left-hand corner of South Dakota, and concluded at twilight 100 miles south in the Black Hills, where I arrived in time for the playing of the national anthem beneath the great white fathers of Rushmore. By design, my pilgrimage was to be a whimsical course in the culture of the Great Plains, the Black Hills, and Mount Rushmore itself. Beyond that, I hoped to come to terms with, if not America entirely, then at least my own Americanness. The Slim Buttes appear to have changed little since September 9th, 1876, the day an encampment of Lakota, as the westernmost Sioux prefer to be called, other Sioux are Dakota or Nakota, was overrun by General George Crook's cavalry. Like the Black Hills, the Buttes are islands in a vast plain. A narrow, twenty-mile-long atoll of limestone ridges and woody reefs bracketed by the Grand and Moreau rivers, and jutting five hundred feet above the rolling upholstery of grass. Natives came here for shelter, food, and fuel, ten thousand years before the first white men happened along, like crusaders, and named the most prominent of the Slim Buttes the castles. I understand the urge to claim Slim Buttes for one's own, for I have done so myself. I have met very few people, including South Dakotans, who have been there. Even those who have heard of the Buttes are vague about their whereabouts. Indians, to be sure, know about them, as do local ranchers, hunters, and, of course, the U.S. Forest Service, the Buttes' legal guardian. To me, though, Slim Butte seems like no man's land, halfway between the bare-bones towns of Buffalo and Bison. I had happened on them on a zigzag tour of the prairie the summer before, and spent my first night in their folds quite alone. On this, my second visit, as I awoke in the back of my suburban just below the castles, I discovered that the rumbling in the night had not been thunder, but the arrival of two bikers who had paused on their trek to the annual Sturgis motorcycle rally in the Black Hills. They had slept on the ground beside their Harleys. I half expected to see pony reins clutched in their hands, night riders too weary to picket their horses. Instead, they had marked their bed ground with bud bottles and Fritos bags. At daybreak, we toasted each other. I, with my Minute Maid, they with more Budweiser. Soon they were in the saddle, belching down the trail toward Highway 20, then southward to the big powwow in Sturgis. I would pass through Sturgis myself, but I still had business in these buttes. A couple of miles east of the castles, fifty yards or so off the pavement, protected by a braided wire fence, stand a stone obelisk, three grave markers, and a naked flagpole. A plaque on the obelisk provides a dispassionate, if ethnocentric, summary of the events of September 9, 1876. On this spot stood the village of 37 lodges, captured at daybreak by Captain Anson Mills with 150 men, and held until the arrival of General Crook's army. 
twenty Sioux took refuge in the wash coulee faced by this tablet, and five were killed. In the afternoon, there was an attack by two thousand Indians.